Jesus is coming. Shout for joy. Joy is a word we see and hear everywhere at Christmas. Joy to the world is the message of the season. Joy is the theme of this day. The third candle on the Advent wreath is called the Shepherd's Candle. It remembers the first in a long line of people who joyfully shared the good news of the Savior's birth. The candle is a different color, reminding us that our period of waiting is half over. This is from Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now we'll light the shepherd's candle. Morning. My name is Mike. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. Glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Wanted to say uh, thank you to Michael real fast for preaching last week. I thought it was really great. He just has a has a really really a gift for speaking the gospel with such clarity. Also, I thought the shoot from the stump of Jesse being the true Christmas tree was just preaching brilliance. That was awesome. So I walked away thinking about that among a lot of other things and just wanted to also just acknowledge praise to the Lord for, for giving our congregation so many uh, guys who are, who are gifted to preach. That, that is not the case in, in every congregation. And, and it really does just help with the, the health of well, A, the, the staff preacher <laughs> helps with his health, um, but also I think just for, for us as a body, there's, there's something healthy about being reminded that at the end of the day, Jesus is our pastor, and that this thing does not ride on any one personality or any one individual. This thing rides on him, working his work, not just among a person who, who takes a paycheck, but among all of us, that we all share the work of ministry under our head shepherd of, of Jesus. And so I feel like every time someone who is not on staff comes up to preach, we're sort of implicitly reminded of, of that reality. And so I think it's healthy for all of us. Grateful to Michael, 
grateful to the other preachers. So this series is called Messiah, Advent in the Prophets, and I'm about to preach from the Psalms. So here's why. So this psalm is not prophecy technically, right? So I don't think that original readers of this psalm were reading it as though it, it were saying something about the future. I don't know that that would have been in their minds necessarily. They, nor, nor were they reading it as sort of preaching. That's sort of what prophecy in, in the Bible comes down to. You, know, you, you might have, or I recently heard it described as foretelling or forthtelling, right? Sort of telling of, of, of future events or, or sort of preaching, basically. And this psalm is neither. I mean, it is a, it is a, it would be considered a lament psalm. So in a lament psalm, what, what, what happens is the poet describes sort of emotional anguish. They bring it before the Lord poetically, and then by the end of the, the psalm, typically there's a reversal, and God sort of breaks through, and, and then there's, it culminates in praise almost every time. And so it's a, it's a typical lament psalm in, in many, many ways. But here's the reason why I think it's still important for us to go through this psalm in particular. Yes, it, it's neither foretelling nor forthtelling, but the original readers almost certainly would have thought of it as a psalm about Messiah. So how does that work? How is it a poem about Messiah if it isn't a poem about the future? So the, the word Messiah, Messiah is really just sort of us English-sizing the, the Hebrew word Moshiach, which you know, it means anointed one. In Greek, it's Christ. But that's basically what Messiah means. It just means one who has been anointed. So over the course of Israel's history, there are actually many, many people who, who were Moshiach. They were, they were anointed ones. Uh, mostly they were, they were kings. And so, for instance, you, you have this moment um, in the book of 1 Samuel where, where David is being pursued by Saul, the king. Saul's the king, and, and David's being pursued by him, and he has this chance at one point to come up and, and kill Saul. Saul's relieving himself in a cave, and all of David's men are with him and saying, like, go, do it now. This is the moment. Kill him. And, and David says this. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to the Lord's Moshiach, to the Lord's Messiah. He says, Lord forbid that I should do that to the Messiah, the anointed one. So this is going to be an important thing to remember, to really understand how this poem ended up being so important to early Christians, much more to Jesus. It's because this poem is about David, a Messiah, expressing himself. So eventually Jesus is going to go on, he's going to read this poem as really saying something just as true about him the ultimate Messiah. So it's a poem written by David. David was this God-fearing, God-adoring man. He was this accomplished poet. He actually wrote a huge chunk of the psalm book. And he was also a king. So he, he was himself a Messiah, little m. And that's why this poem ends up being really important for how we understand Jesus. So since it's a psalm from the point of view of a Messiah, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to go on to quote this psalm as though it's expressing his own experience. Right? He says, this is a psalm about Messiah, so I can read this as, as sort of expressing something about me, too. For Jesus, it's not just a song about David, it's a song about Messiahs. So to, to illustrate this a little bit, I think a similar thing happens actually with our national anthem. So as many of you know, our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, was written by Francis Scott Key. He wrote it sort of to, to reflect on this real experience he had where he was at the, the bombardment of Fort McHenry. This was something that happened during the War of 1812. And he had this experience where the dawn sort of broke after the bombardment, and he saw this tattered, 
you know, American flag, and this would, at, the, at that time, I think it would have had 15 stripes and 15 stars. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but so he, he saw this tattered flag sort of above the, the rampart after this huge battle, right? Uh, this bombardment of Fort McHenry. And so he, he wrote this poem to sort of describe, I mean, the poem is just describing what he saw, basically, right? I and mean, the poem is just describing, you know, the, the bombs and then finally the, the dawn, at, you know, and the sort of hope that he, that he saw. So, I mean, the, the, the poem that we sing, our national anthem, is just sort of describing his experience. But of course, when we, we don't sing it because we're so pumped about what Francis Scott Key experienced, it's that that poem says something not just about that one American, it says something somehow about all Americans. So all of us can sort of sing the Star Spangled Banner and we can relate to this shared sense of history, we can share the, we can, you know, relate to this sort of defiant independence and so on, whatever you want to draw out of it. it. It becomes a song not just about key, but about Americans in general. And so in the same way, when Jesus reads Psalm 22, he's not reading just a psalm sort of poetically describing the experiences of David. He's reading a song about messiahs, which is why he can see himself as the ultimate messiah being the ultimate embodiment of this poem. Is this making sense? I, I hope so. I think it'll become clearer as we walk through it because it'll be sort of illustrated just across the whole thing. So Jesus can read this psalm and say, that's a poem about me. It's not because he's stupid or deluded or something. It's because he understands that he embodies it just as much, if not more, than its author. So it's a psalm of Messiah. And here's what I think we, we ought to do. We're just going to walk through the poem, and we'll sort of identify four movements that, that take place over, the, over the, the course of it. And I won't be dipping in a ton to application right away. I think it's sort of important, especially with, with poetry, to, to just sort of like get the full brunt of the, of the poem, let it just sort of affect us on more of an intuitive level, just because that's sort of the, the nature of, of poetry. It tends to speak to the emotional, intuitive side of yourself. So we're just going to let it sort of affect us, walk through the, the poem, and then we'll talk a little bit about what it has to do with Jesus, and finally, what it has to do with Christmas. So let's jump in. The first thing we see is that suffering comes to the Messiah. Suffering comes to the Messiah, and I'm, I'm wording it that way because, again, we have to remember that David was a Messiah, little m, and so he, as a Messiah, is writing this poem about his experience. It opens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So many of you are going to be very familiar with that opening line of this psalm, and the, the reason why is because it, Jesus quotes it while he's dying. So when Jesus was on the cross, suffering, he, he, it occurred to him to, to shout this phrase, and we're going to find out why as we move along, but many of you are going to be familiar with the opening line of, of this, this psalm for that reason. It's, it's quoted by Christ on the cross. So what's going on here, I think, so the, the poet is looking around as life, David's looking around as life, and there's some sort of suffering that's going on. And it's so intense that it's like God has abandoned him, right? So he's waiting for God to act. He's pleading with God to, to do something, to relieve the burden, save him, and it's just not happening. And so, and so when we read on the psalm, we realize that the problem in David's life is that there are these sort of evil folk who are threatening him, right? The king is endangered, and we know that, that was actually something 
that happened quite often in David's life. He was often being pursued by very aggressive, dangerous people. So it's kind of a common experience in many of his psalms uh, reflect on that. But here in this poem, his descriptions of what's happening, they, they, they slowly become so heightened, like as we read the, the, the psalm, they get more and more heightened and it's harder and harder to find any event in the actual life of David that, that at all lines up with this. I mean, you can read sort of the life story of David in the books of Samuel. And as we move along in the poem, what you're going to notice is that this is, it's harder and harder to find anything to like pinpoint is, oh yeah, this is probably that moment. This is probably that moment. Instead, like the, what he does with the poetry becomes so enlarged that it, it uh, yeah, it seems like it's, it's something even more intense than even his own experiences. So, by the way, 457 is the page in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. It's probably going to be pretty useful to be with me. I'll be paging back and forth. So, if you want to get that out at this point. So, here's what David writes later on in the, in the poem where he sort of expressing more of, of what's happening. He says, many bulls encompass me, like steers. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So he's describing his pursuers as these like wild animals, which it, I think many of us have probably been exposed to that image before, but I think it just helps to sort of freshen that up for us. Like, you know, David's living in the era before, uh, you know, like shotguns and ways of defending yourself. And so he's picturing himself as just him, basically defenseless against all these pursuers coming after him that are able to easily physically overpower him. So it's this terrifying moment. He goes into all these, these images of, of terror. This is on page 458, verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. So this is that sort of just shaky feeling you get when you're just so terrified. My heart is like wax. I think we've all sort of felt that sensation, just the oh no sensation in our chest. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So basically what he's saying there at the end is that I'm good as dead. I'm as good as dead if we we're going to put it in our own idiom. He's saying, I'm laid in the dust of death. And then things get even worse. And this is where we see David begin to describe things that don't line up with anything that we can find in the books of Samuel about stuff that actually happened to him. And the reason why is because the images are here are execution images that he goes into. So he says, these dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. And so here, here's what's going on there. In Hebrew, that word that's translated pierced, it could be pierced, it could be mauled, it could be disfigured. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a word that's kind of open to a number of interpretations. Whatever it is, something sort of terrible has happened to his hands and his feet. The attackers are actually separating out his garments. So the image here is that he's, it's like an execution. I mean, the, that that they are dividing the spoils of, of the one they've killed. That's kind of the image that's going on here, is that like the poet is describing himself as dead. His pursuers are, are now dividing his possessions among themselves, right? So that's sort of how David's portraying this. He wants us to envision his pain poetically as something bordering on an execution. Yet in the middle of this poem, he keeps appealing to God to be faithful. Flip back with me to verses three to five. Something that's consistent throughout the entire psalm is that 
that David's trust in God never truly wavers. He never goes to another source for hope. He never looks to another source to help him. Instead, it is just this dogged, grabbing God by the hem of his robe sort of pleading. Here in in verses three to five, he says, yet you, God, are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he's calling God to act. He's calling God to do the same sorts of things that he's been doing for his people all along, to be faithful to rescue him. But instead what he gets is the silence of God. He's, he's delivering his prayers to just an indifferent ceiling, right? There's just silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet his hope remains in God. So there's a second element to the pain of the poet here. It's not just physical danger. There's this whole other element that, that comes into play, and it's hugely important, especially for, for how, how we're eventually going to see Jesus in this poem, how Jesus saw himself in the poem. It's not just David's life that's at stake. It's his reputation. So suffering comes to the Messiah, but now humiliation comes to the Messiah. Verses six to eight. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So this part is important to notice that the pain that David's expressing, it's not just physical. There's this deep emotional Pain and a big part of it comes from this sort of humiliation. So read again the the, word, the, the the words that they use to mock him. They're saying he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. So throughout this process, like we said, like I said, David is crying out to God to save him. He, all his trust is sort of unwaveringly in God. He's banking everything on God to save. And he's not trying to stifle his pain. He's not trying to just like manage it so he doesn't feel it too much. That is not the Hebrew way. It isn't the Christian way. Instead, he's, he's, he's crying out to God, pouring everything out before him. His trust is in God to, to overcome the situation. So you have to imagine that this is something that he's not just doing privately. This is also something publicly that, that David is doing, right? That like privatized religion is an American and Western thing. It wasn't a Hebrew thing, right? And so David's dogged pursuit of God, that's something that all his friends know about. And it's probably something all his enemies know about. That, that David is just audaciously coming before the throne of God, pleading for help. And so one of David's enemies, they could have heard how David talked, and they would think, what right does he have to ask so much of God? What right does he have to be so bold with God? And of course, David feels he has the right to do this because he's God's man, right? He's one of God's people. He's, he, he's already said, like, God, be faithful to me like you were to all my mothers and fathers before me in the nation, right? So David thinks that he has every right to come before God because he's God's man. Not only that, he's not only just one of the people of God, but he's a king. So he's an anointed one pleading with God. Not only an anointed one, but he's David, the man after God's own heart. He's God's man. And, and, and so David sees himself like that. He ha- has this kind of like boldness before God, and it becomes something that his enemies are using against him, Right? It becomes a reason that his enemies use to mock him. So his, accuser, his accusers pick up on this, and they say, how dare David assume he's God's man? 
David's faith becomes another reason to mock him. So it kind of goes like this. David claims he's trusting in God because God has made David his. He's one of God's people. So he's relying on God. And his accusers hear this and they see how this suffering just continues and continues and continues for David. And so they, they start to say, you must not be God's man. You must not be God's man. They begin to resent this self-perception that David has. So David's identity before God is being called into question. So now what happens if David goes down under all this pressure? If David goes down, if David is killed in this situation, if his accusers win, then, then what does that say? It says, well, he really wasn't God's man, right? That's kind of the, the logic going on in, in the poem here. It's that if, if, if I'm defeated by this, then everyone will think that you and I did not share what we share. It's sort of the logic operating behind, behind this. And so that's why his accusers are saying, like, let God deliver him if he truly delights in God. Does this make sense? Right? So there's this whole humiliating element to the, to the poem that's, that's pretty important. So what does David need? Well, what ends up happening is David, he's not just pleading for God to save him physically, he starts to plead with God to, to vindicate him, right? So David doesn't need just physical restoration. He needs vindication. He needs God to somehow step in and reverse the accusation that, that his, you know, as enemies are making against him. He needs that accusation reversed. And that's what takes place next in the poem. So vindication comes to the Messiah. So I'm going to talk about something so nerdy right now but it's awesome, so bear with me. Okay, so one of the best ways to enjoy your Bible is to, especially the, the poetic parts of the Bible, is just to like familiarize yourself a little bit with Hebrew poetry. Many of you are gonna be already pretty familiar with this, but for those who aren't, or you know, I think all we, we all need a refresher. So different styles of poetry work different ways. So in English, a sonnet has to be 14 lines, and there's a particular way that, that the sort of like heard rhythm of the poem has to go. Or if it's an English haiku, it has to be three lines and there has to be a certain number of syllables in each line. So different sorts of poetry have different sort of, sorts of rules. And Hebrew poetry was the same way. So there were, there were rules, general rules. By the time you get to the prophets, they've just completely, you know, the, the, the art form has developed quite a bit and the prophets do all kinds of things to play with it and it's awesome. But especially for the early poetry, there's sort of these rules, right? And so... You, and it's called parallelism is the like official term for for the Hebrew style of poetry. And basically what you what what you get is you have two lines. They would write in two lines, two lines, two lines, two lines, and the poem would be made up of these sort of pairings, these couplets of lines. And the first line would say something. So the the first line would say, like, Mike is married to Ashley. My wife's name is Ashley. So Mike is married to Ashley. And then the second line, what what it would do, it would either it could contrast the first line. It could say, to any other woman in the world, Mike is not married. Or it could sort of reinforce something, like specify something about the first line. So it could say, for seven years, Mike has been married to Ashley. You know, so it, it's, the second line is somehow reinforcing the first. It's doing something with the first. But oftentimes what happens is we, start, we read Hebrew poetry and we kind of think, oh, you say something and then you paraphrase it, right? Which that isn't quite, quite it. It's not just like Mike is married to Ashley Mike is, is wedded to Ashley. Like that wouldn't, you won't often see something like that. But 
you do see the second line always kind of reinforcing the first. It's, it's reinforcing the first line. So when you get a poem that's sort of telling a story, you don't often have a development in the story between two lines, okay? Because the, the second line is always meant to reinforce the first. So in general, if, you're, if the story's gonna get developed during a poem, that happens in a new couplet. So, you know, for, for us readers, and this, you know, if you've read through the Psalms, especially if you've skimmed through the Psalms, you'll know that there's kind of this rhythm that you fall into, right? Where it's sort of like you, you read one line, you kind of know what the next one's gonna be. And, and for us, if we're not reading very carefully, we can just sort of like skate along, and we always think we know what to expect from the second line. Here's the thing, the authors know that you think that way, right? The authors of the Bible know that you think you know what's happening in the second line, right? And so sometimes they mess with you. And if you're not reading really carefully, then you're just going to completely miss it. So here's, that's my giant way of, of revving up to, to this part, 19 to 21. David is going to mess with us. See if you can catch it. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. You see those two lines working together. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, says one thing, specifies it. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Hold up. So he's calling out to God, come quickly, deliver me, save me. You have saved me. Just suddenly he's saved. So does it make sense? So like using the poetry itself, David does this thing where the, the, his salvation catches us by surprise right? He develops the story in the middle of a couplet. So I know this sounds so nerdy, but when, when you're reading carefully, this is something where, where, like, it had to have been intentional. David is trying to communicate something through the poetry, which is that the salvation of the Lord, in, in this case, comes in an unexpected way, that it comes suddenly. It sort of leaps out at the reader, right? Right in the middle of the line. If I was reading verse 21, I would just say, oh, save me from the mouth of the lion. Rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. But instead I read it and it's save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And in the very next line, suddenly David's in the middle of the congregation among the brothers and sisters of Israel praising God for salvation. It's like the, this, this very grim poem suddenly takes this wild turn and David is vindicated. The Messiah is vindicated. Something has taken place to prove, and to prove false the words of David's accusers. He's proven to belong to God's people. It goes like this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but is heard when he cried to him. So, so far this all makes sense. We've seen sort of the Messiah, little m, suffering, humiliated, and then this, this big vindication, right? And whatever it is that's taking place, it's, it's causing all this stir among God's people, all this worship. There's like a celebration taking place. That's, a, that's actually a pretty common motif in lament psalms. And then so, suddenly something happens in verse 27. So here's what it says. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. 
So here's kind of how the poem goes. We've seen suffering come to the Messiah, humiliation come to Messiah, vindication come to Messiah, and now salvation come to the nations. Suddenly, it's like whatever has happened to save David, it's not just causing a stir in Israel. It's that something about it goes out to the nations and worship erupts among them. That something that the families of the nations are pouring in to worship God as a result of whatever it is that's taken place, right? So David is sort of poetically imagining this thing where it's like his, his vindication is so great that, that the, the all kinds of cultures around the world, families across all the world are all going to be sort of stirred up to be made right with God, to worship the true God, all of them remembering, realizing that their culture, whatever makes them uniquely them, their culture was made for worship of the real God. Through that unique expression, it says the kingship, the kingdom belongs to God. So David's vindication puts God's kingdom on display and all the nations see it. Suffering, humiliation, and vindication come to the anointed one, and salvation comes to the world. That's Psalm 22. All right, so we've gotten kind of this aerial view of the psalm. Now, why does it matter for Jesus? So, what it has to do with Jesus, the reason why it's important for us to talk about this is because this psalm gets quoted by Jesus at his death, like I mentioned earlier. The psalm gets quoted by Jesus while he's on a Roman cross beam. It's one of the final things that comes out of his mouth before he dies. He, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes this psalm. Now, it's very significant that Jesus quotes this particular psalm. It gives us a window into how he saw himself. We know that he thought of himself as Messiah, as, as the Christ, as like Messiah big M. But at that moment when, when he's on the cross, we get this special glimpse into Jesus's sort of experience of the cross. Does this make sense? So we're getting a glimpse into how Jesus is experiencing his own death because he quotes this psalm. He quotes just that first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of the king in the middle of terrible suffering and humiliation. It's the cry of the king who has banked everything on God and yet from the outside looking in appears to be left abandoned. Suffering came to Jesus and humiliation came to Jesus. He preached that he was Messiah, not just God's man, but God's very son. And he was mocked for that claim. He claimed that he was the chosen king of God and he, he, king of that God had chosen, and, and he was mocked for that claim. In fact, while he was being killed above his head, there was a sign that read, King of the Jews. It was ironic. It was an ironic sign. While he was dying, on his head was a sarcastic crown. It was a crown of thorns. So that as people were watching Jesus pant out his life, they, they would be reminded sarcastically, oh, no, 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 but wait, guys. I know it doesn't seem like it, but this is a king. Don't forget King of the Jews. Look, he's even wearing a crown. Humiliation. That the people who are watching Jesus die, that he can make eye contact with, are being constantly invited to mock him as he's dying. 
And in that moment, with this ironic sign above him and the sarcastic crown on his head, culminating a life that was lived in perfect obedience to God, Jesus does not look like a Messiah. In fact, he looks utterly abandoned, forgotten by God. And there were so many passages that could have come to Jesus' mind in that moment, right? Suffering, humiliated, knowing that this is it, this is the end. Like, it will be a matter of hours before his life is ended. Hanging on the cross, there were so many passages that could have occurred to someone in that position. So depending on how Jesus saw, saw himself, he, he could have, like, if he had seen himself as being unjustly Punished, if he saw himself as unjustly suffering, he could have quoted any number of passages from the mouth of Job demanding answers. If he had seen himself sort of trusting God right there to the end, but really not knowing how this thing could end, he could have quoted Psalm 42, which ends ambiguously. There's a hope in God that's expressed, but unlike most lament psalms, it never culminates in praise. The ending is ambiguous. And so he could have quoted Psalm 42, where it's like, all right, God, I'm trusting you, but I don't know where this is going. And then he could have, if he had been, you know, inches away from accusing God of wrongdoing, if he had been hanging there wrestling with the problem of evil, he could have quoted the, the opening lines of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk is, is, is getting this close to almost accusing God. How long, God, will this sort of thing go on? He could have quoted from so many different passages. But instead, what comes out of his mouth is the opening line of Psalm 22, and the reason why is because Jesus doesn't think the ending of his story is in question. He's abandoned by God, suffering unjustly, emptying himself in pain, and yet right in the middle of it all, he thinks things are going exactly the way they go for Messiah. And on the other side of the cross, he doesn't see confusion. There's no question mark. He doesn't see injustice winning the day. He doesn't see hopelessness. He doesn't see disappointment. He sees vindication. He sees resurrection. He sees a kind of vindication that will catch everyone by surprise. Vindication coming unexpectedly, flipping the script of the poem. He sees God reversing the verdict of his accusers so that the verdict of not Messiah becomes reversed to Messiah. He sees light going out to the nations. He sees the people of God called together from the ends of the earth. He sees all kinds of cultures coming to realize that their culture was always made for the gospel. He sees salvation for anyone who would trust in his name. He is not confused by the cross. He is watching the poem of Messiah's suffering play itself out, and he knows how it's going to end, that he has to suffer with us so that we can be vindicated with him. And so he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knows that soon kingship will belong to the Lord. Verse 1 will become verse 28. So many of you are probably like, cool, Mike, thanks for the Good Friday sermon four months early. So truth is, the truth is, we were not going to have time to talk about all this stuff in the spring, so I shoehorned it into the Messiah series. So that's, you know, just candid. But it's a Messiah series, so we got to talk about this stuff. It makes sense. But no, so here's why I actually do think this is important now. I think it's important that we preach a Good Friday sermon in the middle of Advent. And the reason why 
is because the infant that came to us in the manger, manger came as this Messiah. The infant who came to us in the manger was the infant who would grow up to suffer. Lucy Shaw is a really talented poet. Um, she, she's a, a, a Christian. She wrote this Christmas poem called Kenosis, which means emptying. So sort of, sort of like the way that Jesus emptied himself to become human. And she writes this poem about the infant Jesus, but she does it in a way where we're, we're both confronted with his vulnerability. I'm going to read the poem, but you'll, you'll notice the way that she, she really skillfully just shows him to be a baby, right? Like just, just a baby, you know, thinking baby thoughts, having baby dreams. But the way that she tells the poem makes it so that you are, you're simultaneously wanting to sort of like pity and care for the infant Jesus, all while being constantly reminded in the poem that you're actually the one that needs his pity. That at the end, he's the one that will give a great act of protection for you. That at the end of the day, he has come to suffer for your salvation, even while you're watching this sort of impoverished little baby in the poem. So here's how it goes. In sleep, his infant mouth works in and out. He is so new, his silk skin has not yet been roughed by plane and wooden beam nor so far has he had to deal with human doubt. He's in a dream of blue-white milk, of curving skin, and pulsing in his ear the inner throb of a warm heart's repeated sound. His only memories float from fluid space. So new he has not pounded nails, hung a door, broken bread, felt rebuff, bent to the lash, wept for the sad heart of the human race. One of the most interesting things about Advent is that it takes place during the darkest month of the year. In December, the, the, the days are shortest. Advent takes place during the darkest month of the year. And in our culture, we've come to associate well, we call it Christmas time. We don't call it Advent. We're celebrating Christmas time. We've come to associate Christmas time with sort of warm nostalgia and fun and stimulation and stuff. And some of that is all right. But what ends up happening is that we become inundated by these commercials and there's these sweater-wearing families that appear to have never experienced conflict with each other and there's like laughter by the fire and, and we, we, we're you know, increasingly on the radio, given these, these songs where it's like, isn't it great that we have this season devoted entirely to enjoyment, and it's sort of for its own sake, and, you know, it just feels like, man, this is kind of exhausting. And, and so what ends up happening is we feel like we can never really have that kind of enjoyment with Christmas that we're constantly being told we need to have. And so increasingly, Christmas feels more and more empty. Advent feels more and more empty. Maybe we lost a loved one. And this is the first year where we're going to spend Christmas without them. Maybe we lost them 20 years ago. And we still can't get over the fact that they're not here. Maybe we're once again walking through Advent anticipating a Christmas spent alone. Maybe we just can't get over the sense of emptiness that we feel. The sense of disappointment with our life that our childhood Christmases were, were spent with our whole life ahead of us where we felt there were things to look forward to. And now we don't feel that there's anything big we're looking forward to in our adulthood. 
So you end up feeling like you're missing out. Where what ends up happening is Advent actually makes your grief more keen, more felt. Because our lives aren't Norman Rockwell perfect. So it makes you feel like you can never really take part anymore in Advent, much less Christmas. But I think given the fact that the infant Christ came to be the crucified Christ, those of you who are sitting here today feeling grief during Advent, you may be more ready to participate than anyone. Advent is about holding out hope for Messiah right in the middle of the darkness. Israel was not pining for Messiah in comfort, but under exile, under oppression, under occupation, under disappointed hopes. And now we stand waiting for the second advent, under exile, under oppression, under occupation, under disappointed hopes. Our longing does not exclude us from the meaning of Christmas. It brings us to the threshold of the stable. Jesus was not born just to give us something to put on the front of a Christmas card. He was born to carry our sorrows, which is precisely why on one level we still can feel the warmth of Christmas. We have full permission to feel the warm nostalgia and, the, and, and to have fun and to have something to celebrate because there is something to celebrate. But for those of you who are sitting here and you can't bring yourself to that, you aren't excluded. Jesus came to carry your sorrows. If you, so we're constantly invited to deny the darkness during this part of the year. We're constantly told that to participate in Advent, to participate in Christmas, you kind of have to put a rose-tinted sheen over everything in your life. Deny the darkness just for this season, because this season is about enjoyment. But if you deny the darkness of the world, you deny why the nativity is bright. This infant came to suffer with us so that we could be vindicated with him. And because of that, Christmas is not some trite, consumeristic, annual decorating party. It is the announcement of unstoppable, defiant hope. It is the announcement that God was pleased to dwell with the lowest among us. As David says in the poem, he hasn't despised the affliction of the afflicted. Our sin and our exhaustion and our anguish are not too much for him. Christmas is the announcement that we have not been abandoned, that we have not been forgotten, that we are not alone in our pain, but that God has come to overcome by becoming part of it with us. And by the self-giving love of Messiah, salvation is broken in and the kingdom belongs to the Lord forevermore. So here's what I'd like us to do now. In a moment, I'm going to pray. But I think wherever you are emotionally this morning, I think we need silence so that we each can express that to the Lord in prayer. If you're grieving, then lament now. If you're exhausted, then be tired before God. If you're disappointed, tell him. If things are, are well with you, then praise. Let's have silence to just be what we are before God. It's just a moment of bare authenticity. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel.
for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from you, but has heard when you cried to him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations.